everyone. Welcome to the aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the aquarium, and it's great to see all of you here this evening and so many young people to talk about this very important topic of climate change. <coughs> We're delighted to have all of you here who are in the theater, and we want to welcome all of those who are watching online. For those of you here, please your, turn your cell phones off or put them on vibrate, and do not text, please, for the next hour. This is a text-free environment. Tonight, we're very pleased to welcome back to the aquarium Dr. Thomas White. <coughs> he's an old friend of the aquarium, he's an old personal friend, and he's a collaborator. We're working together on a manuscript to tell the story of how the future will turn out if we stay on our present trajectory, but how it could turn out if we use the knowledge, the science, and the technology that we have to act decisively to deal with climate change, both to mitigate it and to adapt to it. Dr. White is Professor Emeritus of Loyola Marriott, U Marymount U University, and he was there for 25 years. He grew up on the south shore of Massachusetts, got his BA at Holy Cross University, and a PhD at Columbia University in New York City. He taught in New Jersey at Uppsala College and Ryder University at before joining LMU. And he recently moved to Western Massachusetts. He's a philosopher who has specialized in the ethics of how we treat each other, how we treat the environment, and how we treat, we treat other animals. He's published eight books, numerous articles, ranging all the way from 16th century Renaissance humanism in, in business to, uh, to business ethics. And uh, he's the founder and executive director of the IBECC. That's the International Business Ethics Case Competition. It brings people from all over the world together to talk about uh, ethics in business, and they actually compete. He's a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, and he served as the US Ambassador to the United Nations in 2007-8, which was the year of the dolphin. He's a distinguished scholar, a distinguished teacher, and I think he's the conscious, conscious, the, the uh, conscience for many of us and for much of the world in the ways that we deal with each other and, and our environment. Tonight he's going to talk about a philosophical and evolutionary answer to the climate change mystery. Why the doubt? And I hope that afterwards we will have a vigorous discussion with all of you. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Thomas White. Thank you all very much. Here we go. I'm delighted to be here. I'm especially happy to see so many uh, students. Now, my understanding is, since this is a school night, uh, by coming tonight, you don't have to go to school tomorrow. So I may be wrong on that, but I think that's the way this is supposed to work. So thank you for being here. The, um, when I first started getting involved with the intersection of science and ethics, it was a number of years ago in connection with the work I've done on the uh, philosophical and especially the ethical implications of the scientific research on whales and dolphins. About uh, six, seven years ago, Jerry approached me about sort of shifting my focus a bit 
and starting to look at some of the ethical issues related to climate change. And so that was really around the point where we started talking about doing this book, which, uh, which aims to sort of highlight ethical issues and talk about the current technologies that are available, and also the overall arching, overarching problem of climate change. So I've done a couple of talks on this. I did one here two years ago on why I see uh, what the ethical issues are in connection with climate change. Um, with that and then another talk I did in Cambridge, I started brooding about why there continued to be in the United States so much doubt about this topic when the scientific evidence was not only so plain, but has been for a number of years. So tonight I'm going to give you my version of an answer to that, and you can decide whether this makes any sense or not. Uh, the, um, there's a lot of data that I need to, to go through before we get to what the interesting part is. And I hope, I, I, trust me, I hope this is going to be more interesting than the cumbersome title I came up with. I am not a titles guy. Uh, virtually every book except one that I've done, somebody else has come up with the title. So I confess I do not come up with good titles. When Jerry was reading that off, I thought, I really should have done better on that. So I promised I'm going to try to make this, whoops, more interesting than the, than the title of the topic. There is a lot of data. so. Since I don't want to run too long, I'm going to go through the data relatively quickly. Uh, if you have any questions on that, hold on, and I'll try to get back to that during the Q&A. But uh, let's jump into it. Now, this is going to seem like an unusual start, but imagine that I, I have vast amounts of money. And imagine now that I live in western Massachusetts, being relatively close to Boston, and you probably know there's rivalries between the, Cent the Celtics and, uh, uh, and the Lakers. And imagine that in order to ingratiate myself with the Celtics fans, I decide since I have vast resources, I am going to get the you know, sort of revenge for the Celtics, and I'm going to spend all of my money trashing Kobe's reputation to make sure that everybody comes to the conclusion that Kobe Bryant was nothing more than a middling professional, that he really wasn't as great as everybody says, that the statistics were cooked, they were all done by friends and family. Okay, how likely do you think that I'm going to be successful? Not very. Trust me, not even in Boston would I be successful at this. Kobe Bryant was such a great player no one in his or her right mind would conclude differently. Okay, keep that in mind. We'll come back to this. Now, what I'm going to do on, on this talk, just to run through, I'm going to start, as I said, this is going to go relatively quickly. I want to go, the, go through the basic facts on climate change, what the perception is, which is not the same as the facts, get into some of the issues about why the difference, and that's really sort of the important stuff about the data that I'm going to be surveying then spend a little time talking about the philosophical and evolutionary significance of this, and then the most important question, so what do we do about this? So, as I said, we're just going to kind of tear through this. Okay, where are we? As far as the science goes, the facts are quite clear. We've got a warming planet. As you all know, I'm sure this comes from a perfectly natural phenomenon, the greenhouse effect. The sun heats up the earth, not all the heat escapes to the atmosphere. A certain amount is kept with greenhouse gases, the planet warms, that's fine. 
as long as we stay in balance. Problem is, we aren't in balance anymore. The global temperature has been going up because of the trapped uh, carbon dioxide. This really has been driven by industrialization and humans burning fossil fuels, which made sense at a certain point, but we kind of aren't at that point anymore. The temperature, CO2 levels, going increasingly high to a uh, not-so-swell level. This is, as far as the Earth is concerned, a really pretty recent phenomenon. The, uh, as you see, we have something going back 600, 700,000 years. This, by the way, comes from ice core samples, which if you want to know how do we know that much, it's ice core samples. And what we have in our situation, really very recent. There's been up and down with global temperature and CO2 history, but the level we've never seen on the planet, this kind of a level, and this is actually a dangerous level. Not only that, things are getting worse. The latest, latest report from the UN, the emissions forecast were was bleak. They say global emissions are expected to keep climbing, threatening to shatter the threshold of two degrees Celsius that scientists say would, advise, would invite drastic changes to ecology and the economy. So, not great news. The science on this has been settled, and has been settled for years. In 1990, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change issued its first report. Now, 1990 was a while ago. The science at that was, was quite clear at that point. Interestingly, by the way, in 1978 and 1980, there were reports for, from scientists in the petroleum industry that were saying the same thing about global warming. So, uh, everybody knew it was the case. If you, if we said, well, but how good is the science? You know, is it that some scientists think it, most scientists think it? If we ask the question, what percentage of climate scientists, you know, the people who are paid to worry about this kind of thing, what do they think as far as human-caused global warming? 97 percent. Now, if you know anything about researchers, anything about academics, it is virtually impossible to get them to, to agree on anything. 97%, if you walked in, in, to, in you know, said, well, what color is that on the wall? In any group of scientists and researchers and academics, 10% of people will always have a different opinion. So to say 97%, really, trust me, that's, that's remarkable as far as the level of consensus. When we talk about climate change, we aren't talking just about rising ocean levels. We're talking about superstorms, earthquakes, extreme heat, drought, food and water shortages, and all other sorts of things, because we're talking about climate, and we're talking about different forces of energy that are, that are shifting. My favorite reports on this, by the way, not the IPCC ones, which are great, but two reports done by the Center for Naval Analyses, one in 2007, one in 2014, on the, if you can read this, National security and the threat of climate change. These are reports done by a group of retired military people, military people who do not exactly have a reputation as being liberal tree huggers, whose job it is to assess risk. They come to the conclusion that global warming, global climate change is a serious national security matter. And in these reports, they tie this very interestingly to a variety of things that impact our security, including things like failed states, mass migrations, and international terrorism. The bottom line on this is there's a dragon out there. Climate change is happening. It's not our friend. 
it's easy to think, yeah, it's a dragon. It's real. We may as well accept that. Dragon scientists, people who are paid to know about dragons, say, yep, it's a dragon. And by the way, it's fire breathing. Okay, so that's where we are. Those were the facts. What's the perception? Best source on this is a report that was issued last April, Climate Change in the American Mind, coming out of a Center for uh, Communication, um, Climate communica Communications at George Mason University. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of this. So one of the things they say, as you can see at the top, about 7 in 10 Americans think global warming is happening. Okay, that's, that's good news. We're down here. We see this is 50%, so we see relatively high numbers. Okay, we're, we're good. But not surprisingly, there's a reason I underline this thing Americans think, because if we then say, okay, are you sure? Well, the number drops. And we then get, well, still, you know, more people are sure than aren't. And if we say, do you think that global warming is mostly human-caused? Again, we're, you know, whoops, we're more than 50%. So we're, like, sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button. You know, we're still more than 50%. So initially, that's not bad news. The problem is that when I look at stuff like this, I look at it differently than lots of people. And here, it's not so much the good news. It's, well, well you know, we have a situation here where 54% of the population is not sure that it's happening. Okay, 97% of climate scientists say, yes, it is happening. They're sure. Not only is it that the case that only that a majority of the country thinks that it isn't, how come it's dipped? If you've, been, if you've been watching the news at all, the news has gotten worse. Superstorms, all kinds of problems. Australia is on fire. And the number is dipping. People are now less sure than before. If you ask people, to the best of your knowledge, what percentage of climate scientists think that human-caused global warming is happening, remember, the correct answer is 97%. Only 17% get that right. That means that climate scientists, 97% of them, think that it's the case. 83% of Americans get the answer wrong. They either aren't sure or they think that it's less than it is. Small percentage get the answer right. So if we were to give ourselves a grade for what, what is the level of our knowledge about the threat of the dragon out there, it's really not, we can't get more than a D. You know, 50%, you know, we're, and, and I'm doing great inflation, and I've been teaching for decades. We're, we're, I'm, I'm doing a D with great inflation. So, uh, you know, this is, this is serious. We have a situation that um, dragon specialists say, here's the deal. Most people say, I'm not quite so sure. Okay, so that's the perception. How did we get here? You know, such, this such disconnect between, you know, dragon scientists and the rest of us. I'm going to lay out five different factors, five different forces, five different reasons for what I, think, what I think is driving this and what I think has explained and continues to explain the difference. Okay, first of all, absolutely boatloads of money have been spent in the last few decades to get people to doubt the science. 
no question about that. You know, this is not you know, anything but recounting what is publicly known about who is spending what, but the American Petroleum Institute, the Koch brothers, the Republican Party, Global Climate Coalition, they put piles of money into this in order to get people not to think that the scientists had come to a conclusion. Now, one of the more interesting pieces of this, from my perspective, is that, as, I, as you see, you know, the Republican Party took this position. It was actually, most people don't know that there was actually a significant shift in the position of the Republican Party at the time. And there's this interesting memo from 2003, which has a, a, a kind of interesting angle that I'll get to, that in the, in the 2004 presidential ca campaign for the presidential election in 2004, um, a Republican strategist wrote a memo and convinced you know, the campaign to adopt this strategy. And this is a story that was written in The Guardian at the time. It's worth taking a look at. So okay. the US Republican Party is changing tactics on the environment, avoiding frightening phases such as global warming, after a confidential party memo warned that it is the domestic issue on which George Bush is most vulnerable. The memo, by the leading Republican consultant Frank Luntz, concedes the party has lost the environmental communications battle and urges its politicians to encourage the public in the view that there is no scientific consensus on the dangers of greenhouse gases. The scientific debate is closing against us, but not yet closed. There is still a window of opportunity to challenge the science, Mr. Luntz writes in the memo. By the way, that of course is not true. They, they, it, was, it was decided at that point. Um, that voters believe that there is no consensus about global warming within the scientific community. Should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled, their views about global warming will change accordingly. Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue in the debate. Well, that was done, and it worked. Note here, this is a survey just from 2015 that showed that on the questions of how serious a problem is climate change? Is it harming people? Most Republicans wouldn't agree with that. A lot of independents, even Democrats. So this worked. That is the, the attempt to get people to doubt what the science was. Now, I throw this in simply because I have a fondness for such things. You can file this under the there is justice in the world. I'm going to skip that. So Frank Luntz decided that he was wrong. Frank Luntz, the author of that memo, why did he decide he was wrong? Frank Luntz lives in LA. Last spring, 3 a.m., he was awakened to evacuate from his house because there were fires threatening him. He decided, I guess it's real after all. And he is now saying, I wish people would stop quoting what I said 18, 20 years ago. But see, you know, people will eventually come around. There is hope. There is good news here. When people who have been denying find, find fire coming at their doorstep, they get, they get with it. So we, can, we don't want to wish ill on anyone, but you know, sometimes good things come out of natural disasters. Okay. Now, it is true, as I said, boatloads of money was thrown at this. There was a concerted campaign. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you can get people to change their mind. It's like, you know, you plant a seed. 
you can plant a seed and if you put it in good soil and take care of it, it grows. If you put it in bad soil or you don't take care of it, it doesn't grow. So in our situation, we might say the seed of doubt fell on really fertile soil. All the money in the world would not convince people of something unless they were somehow in a position to be, have their mind made up. That means that in this situation, talking about the perception about climate change, to quote Walt Kelly, we have met the enemy and he is us. All the money in the world from the petroleum industry would, and the GOP would not have worked except for other things being in place. Now, the second factor, which we now get to, that is the factor of what made the, the ground so fertile. Let's start with this, what Americans do and don't know about science. So this is a survey that was done internationally. I'm just, I just have up here the US and Canada for comparison. The center of the Earth is very hot. Most people got that. The continents have been moving their location for millions of years. Most people got that. Does the Earth go around the sun or does the sun go around the Earth? Most people got that. The universe began with a huge explosion. 42%, uh, not so good. And antibiotics kill viruses as well as bacteria. A uh, little better. Human beings, as we know them, developed from earlier species of animals. Uh, again, not so swell. Uh, by the way, notice the Canadians uh, did significantly better than us, or at least marginally better than us. Um, now, you know, on balance, these aren't bad numbers. But again, I tend to look at things a little differently. So I look and I say, well, you know, this means that 24% of Americans think that the sun goes around the Earth. Now, I watch a lot of bad science fiction on the sci-fi channel. It's always made clear that we're going around the sun. So this is not good news that people aren't even watching bad science fiction and get the, get the message. 58% uh, said the Big Bang didn't happen. I mean, how long did that series go on? It starts with a song 14 billion years ago. How can you even be a watcher of bad, you know, so not, I mean, I love the show, but mass market television and not know the Big Bang happened. 51% think that humans didn't evolve. Uh, but yeah, this is who we are. You know, these are the results that, that we have. NASA, a little while ago, commissioned a study on what they call civic science literacy. They define it as the ability of a citizen to find, make sense of, and use information about science or technology to engage in a public discussion of policy choices involving science or technology. This is a skill that is especially important in democratic societies. It's important because if we're going to vote on something, it helps that we know something about it. So, no surprise, they'd want to know this. Bad news is that only 28% of our population gets to be considered scientifically literate. That means like you can read a story in the New York Times science section and at least get the big picture of what it means and have enough information to cast a vote or discuss policy intelligently. What grade would we give ourselves then for scientific literacy? Again, it's probably about a D. In other words, most of us can't read things about dragons and understand, yeah, there's a real threat out there. Yeah, the, they're dragons. It's like we read and think, oh, I'm not so sure I'd rather, you know, do my PS4. 
Reason number three why the soil was so fertile, there's a, uh, it's called the Program for International Assessment of Adult Competencies. This is, a, this is done on a regular basis, an international evaluation of a variety of abilities. They typically work people from 16 to 65, the group that they study. We're going to look at two of the results from that. Literacy, that, that is the ability to understand, use, and respond appropriately to written texts, so you know, reading and reasoning. And numeracy, the ability to use basic mathematical or computational skills. Okay, literacy and reasoning, you see that they have five levels. Four percent of the populate of the group studied came below level one, 13 percent at level one, 33 percent at level two, 36 percent at level three, 13 percent at levels four and five. Now the key is, what's the deal with these? How difficult are these, are these levels? Here's a level three problem. Okay, this is a list of rules for a preschool. Have your child here by nine. Bring a small blanket. Dress your child comfortably. No jewelry or candy. Bring your child fully dressed. I've taught, I've taught college in for years. That's never been a problem. I kind of remarked on, you know, was surprised at that, but maybe it is a problem with preschool. Uh, sign in. Breakfast is served until 7.30. Medications, if you have any questions. Okay, that's what everybody was given. That's the question that they were, that they were asked. What is the latest time that children should arrive at preschool? Well, it's right here in the first one. The only other time time is mentioned is here. Okay, this is, everybody seems to have been okay with this. Notice that, okay, so this was a level three problem. That means that in the group studied, 50% of the people got that, something like that wrong. Okay, numeracy, same deal. Five levels, 8% below level one, 19% at level one, 30% at 34 at level two, 29% at level three, 10% at four and five. I've got to tell you, by the way, in earlier uh, reports, they broke out four and five. They started clumping them together because the numbers were so small, they wanted to not make it look, seriously, they didn't want it to make it look not so bad. Okay, so again, the deal is, what's the, what's the significance of how difficult is the stuff? Okay, here's a level three numeracy question. You have an ad for a sale on running shoes. One is $29.50, one is $34.20. The sale is, if you buy both, the less expensive, you get 50% off equal or lesser value. So, the question is, how much would you pay if you purchased both? Okay, not rocket science. You take the more expensive shoe, you take half of the less expensive shoe, you add it up, you get $48.95. Okay, that's a level three problem. And as you see, about 60% of the people in the study couldn't do that. These are average, you know, 16 to 65 year old Americans. Now here's a level four problem. You're probably thinking, well, maybe this is really tilted in the wrong way. So here's a level, I want to show you a level four problem. The Cooper test is a standard test for physical fitness. It's how, how far can you run if you run as hard as you can for 12 minutes. And this is the, you know, the, the what you get in order to, to determine the results about where, what category you fall into. So here was the problem. 
27-year-old woman runs 1,800 meters, which puts her in the average category, what percentage of improvement does she have to make in order to move into the good category? So we look at this right level, 20 to 29. She was at 1,800. She needs to go to 2,200 to be, to be good. That means there's a 400-meter difference. What percentage of improvement? 400 divided by 1,800, 22%. Okay, a little more difficult, but notice that as a level four and five problem, that means that everybody else couldn't get it. 90% couldn't get it. If we take a step back and see how we did as a nation against other nations in terms of literacy and numeracy, okay, whoops, so we're here, a little less than average in uh, literacy. We're here when it comes to numeracy. We aren't so swell as Americans when it comes to numbers. What grade would we give ourselves for literacy, reasoning, and numeracy? Well, we've got to take it down on the numeracy to a D minus because that's even worse than the D we're getting ourselves for reasoning. So on the question, how well do we do if we're presented with stuff to read about dragons that may have some charts and may have some numbers, uh, not doing so well. Reason number four on the perception for why the soil was so fertile for doubt. Okay, this is the one that really gets under my skin because I have for decades taught reasoning and taught logic. Illogical thinking is just rampant in our society. The, and worse, there is no shame for people to say stuff that is absolutely ridiculous, inconsistent, um, contradictory, uh, hypocritical. You just go down the list. I mean, I used when I when I taught logic, uh, I just loved election years because you would get a crop of the absolute the worst examples of thinking on a day-to-day -day basis. So I could I, I didn't have to do class preparation. I just brought in the news. And it's true that, sadly, in American public discourse, the thinking, the, the reasoning that we get publicly advanced in the world of politics is, the, is, is abysmal. So, but it's common. And as I said, there, nobody shows any shame about rolling out arguments that make no sense whatsoever. Uh, but I've gone from really loving this to cringing now every, day, every time I pick up a, you know, read a news story. What is the grade of our culture's commitment to logical thinking? That's even worse than, you know, than, our, than our literacy and numeracy. That's an F. And the fifth reason we're in this situation, why the soil was so fertile, there's been an ongoing assault on truth. Now, this has been going on for a while, but it isn't just the assault on climate change and the data of science there. There's a kind of ongoing assault on, I mean, for, that there was a conspiracy saying that, or that there were reports saying the Sandy Hook shooting didn't happen, that that was a conspiracy. I mean, that is just, you've got to say, look, if you have these school children who are massacred and someone says, oh, you know, I think we really got to ask about whether this happened or not. There was a column someone wrote at the time saying, you know, yeah, it was a tragedy, but it, you know, you, you, you can't start talking about politics on this. Well, what they were referring to on the saying, criticizing that someone was politicizing this was somebody said, 
what was this guy doing with, an, with a semi-automatic weapon, which let him you know, kill more kids in a short amount of time? Um, uh, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and William Barr are trying to rewrite history of what happened a few years ago. Uh, there's been a, I used to teach business ethics, as, Jenny, as, as Jerry mentioned. Uh, there has been this consistent drumbeat of, yes, wealth trickles down. A rising tide lifts all boats, which you always hear the next time, and you know, sometimes they want to pass uh, corporate tax breaks. Not true. This is a graph of corporate profits from 1950. This is distribution of wealth. Now, you will notice, by the way, up to 1980, things did kind of go in tandem. You had everybody, indeed, a rising tide was lifting all boats. At that point, because of various tax legislations, it starts shifting, but it's just no longer, but despite the fact that this is where we are now, people keep saying, oh yeah, a rising tide lifts all boats. So what is our grade for our culture's commitment to truth or facts? It's, you know, it, it also is pretty much an F. Now then, let's go back to the question, why do we have so much doubt about climate change? As a country, we're characterized by scientific illiteracy, weak basic skills in literacy and numeracy, weak logical thinking, and concerted efforts to undermine these skills and the concept of truth. In that situation, how is it possible that we couldn't be deceived by this kind of thing? This is the context in which, as I said, this is why, you know, you, you have to have a fertile soil. This was the soil that made it possible for doubt to take hold. You put all those grades together, again, it's no surprise that people were saying, I don't see any dragons, and the, dragons, the dragon experts are just saying there are dragons out there because they're trying to get money for dragon research. This takes us back to where we started. Nobody in LA, not even in, nobody even in Boston, would be able to be convinced, no matter how much money I had, that Kobe Bryant was just some middling kind of basketball player. Everybody knows, no, he was one of the best stars around. It troubles me that uh, we're a whole lot more confident about what we can say about Kobe Bryant and basketball than what we can say about dragons and, and climate change. So this should, be, this should be troubling. Okay, so now let's get to the significance of this. That's, the that's all the data, you know, so now let's see what that, what I see that as meaning. Well, from a philosophical standpoint, it's like there are, there are two big areas why this is important. One has to do with the concept of truth. You know, philosophers are big on logic, truth, knowledge, understanding. There are people who will argue that we either are in or are heading towards a post-truth world. This was an interesting piece in The Economist a few years ago where somebody wrote, there's a strong case that in America and elsewhere, there is a shift towards a politics in which feelings trump facts more freely and with less resistance than used to be the case, helped by new technology, a deluge of facts, and a public much less given to trust them than once it was. Some politicians are getting away with a new depth and pervasiveness of falsehood. If this continues, the power of truth as a tool for solving society's problems could be lastingly reduced. I'm sure we all see that is really serious. You know, if you can't rely on truth, if you can't rely on facts to solve problems, uh, 
you know, what will we rely on? The problem is, these kinds of conditions make it possible for us to be manipulated. If you can't rely on facts and you can't rely on truth, you have no protection against being manipulated. And we saw that, indeed, that worked when it came to climate change. The science was solid here. The campaign against all of this and the soft, you know, the, the fertile soil all this time, even in the last few years, it, in the last year, we see a drop in that. So if you don't have a reliance on truth, what you can do is to manipulate people like crazy. If, there's no, if they don't have the protection of facts and truth, if, they, if, they're, if, the, if the soil is soft, that's what happens. If you just take out the scientific parts of it and say, okay, maybe we're still better on other issues, no, because reasoning and thinking, numeracy, respecting truth, logical thinking, we're still in trouble because of the way that it lets us not see other dragons that are out there. You know, we're still vulnerable to manipulation on two fronts. Somebody may say, that's not a dragon, when it is. Or somebody say, there's a really serious dragon there that we have to take action against, and it may not be anything but, you know, a pussycat. So we can, the danger is, from an ethical standpoint, manipulating people. Because look, the only reason you aren't straight with people, whether it's a lie or deception, is because you're trying to get them either to think something or to do something that they wouldn't do if they knew the truth. Anyone who sort of trusts you to run your own life is going to tell you the truth because that's the only way they get to make their own decision. If people are finessing the truth, they're trying to manipulate you. Okay, last big point before we get to the what do we do. What's the evolutionary significance of this? Now, this is the most speculative part of what I'm talking about. I am, I am not a biologist, I'm a philosopher. But as I've, as I've looked at this, I kind of, kind of had to step back and say, what does this mean in terms of our species? Okay, so adaptation is the basic mechanism that kind of works through, you know, evolution and natural selection. Adaptation is, you know, when we, t when we identify one, we say, well, that's something that's common in a population because it provides for improved function. You know, an adaptation is something that makes life better. Adaptations are well fitted to their function and are produced by natural selection. So things like long necks on a giraffe, the sonar in bats, uh, the the uh, strategy of the killdeer, the, the bird that pretends it has a broken wing to lure predators away from its nest. Those are things that make life better, more successful for those species. Now, to move this into the world of psychology, where psychologists talk about adaptive versus maladaptive behaviors, you can extend this a bit, adaptive behaviors increase our ability to function and succeed, whereas Maladaptive behaviors make life less successful. I don't see any dragons. No, I guess there aren't any dragons there. Maladaptive behavior overall, I mean, in, in the long term. So let's go back to the question, why is it out about climate change? Well, scientific illiteracy, weak basic skills in literacy and numeracy, weak critical thinking skills, concerted efforts to undermine the truth. These are features of our culture which are clearly maladaptive and self-destructive. These are not features in our culture which are going to help us survive either individually or, or as a species. This is, so I find this really troubling. 
because these traits compromise our ability to perceive and respond to threats, which is one of the things you need in order to survive over the long term. You need to be able to know, oh yeah, it's a dragon, oh yeah, it's not, it's not a big threat. You have to be able to perceive and respond to threats. The reason that this is so significant to me, as far as when I talk about, look at this as the ultimate evolutionary significance, it raises the question of who are we, really? You know, we say we're homo sapiens, we're the thinking hominid, we've got this brain, we're the gold standard of intelligence on the planet, we're really hot stuff. And that means this brain is supposed to exist the ability to perceive and respond to threats. Look, if the brain processes information, if nothing else, it should let us identify and solve problems, identify threats, and respond appropriately. We, as a society, have not been recognizing and responding to the fact that we've got a dragon at our, at our doorstep. Our speech, you know, it, it's bad enough in the United States, but overall, you know, we're, other countries do better, but, you know, as a species, as a culture, you know, in the last hundred years or so, we've, we're, 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 we all have problems on this score. So, who are we really? I think another way, in addition to saying, oh yeah, we're homo sapiens, but are we really homo sapiens in sapiens? Are we really a thinking hominid who frequently does not think? And again, the reason that's so important is that there are threats out there that we have to be able to grapple with. So the most important question, what do we do about all of this? You know, this is, this is not a happy set of, set of facts, this is not a great data, but you have to remember that we got where we are by, as Carl Sagan would put it, billions and billions of individual decisions made by billions and billions of people over time. That got us to where we are. It was not some great force that, you know, that this just happened. How do we get out of the situation? The same way. Individuals making decisions over time. But I think the two things we have to really focus on, we've got to be much more aggressive about saying, yes, there are facts, respecting the truth. There really, I think, needs to be some social cost for lying and manipulating. And that's the other thing. Facts and truth protect us from being manipulated. And I think that's a danger that we have to recognize and, again, have to sort of be, be more forceful about in recognizing this is how we protect ourselves. As with anything of this sort, this is a matter of thinking globally and acting locally. Each of us has some area in which we can have an impact. You know, one of the problems with these kinds of problems, with these kinds of issues, is you hear the data and you say, oh my word, this is so big, I'm going to give up. Well, that does nothing for anybody. But there are areas of our life where we have an which we can have an impact. That's what you focus on. Who do you talk to? How do you talk about things? What do you read? Who do you vote for? Where do you put your money and your resources? So part of the challenge that we all have in this kind of situation is we say, okay, I can't make climate change go away as a problem. It's going to take, a, it's going to take time. It's going to take effort but I can identify what I can do in my world and encourage other people to do what they can in theirs, and that's where we get hope. That's where we get progress. We don't 
you know, we don't think we can solve it overnight, but look, on voting, this is something we need governments to do. We need governments to take action. We need money to do this. So surely it'd be nice if governments were better about getting the, you know, the money that we need in order to do this kind of thing. The, uh, the lesson then is, as with anything, an environmental issue of any sort, you just have to focus on the, your own part of the world where you can have an impact. But it's very important to take that seriously because after all, there are all kinds of dragons out there. You know, it isn't just climate change. There are all kinds of problems that are out there that we have to encounter, we have to deal with in some way, and the best that we can hope for is that each of us, our friends and family, people we encounter, you know, we can encourage them to take it as seriously as we do, and as I said, that's where hope lies in making the world down the road a better place. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. We have time for a few questions. If you raise your hand, let's see. Linda's over there. She'll bring a microphone because without a microphone, the people watching remotely can't uh, hear. Go ahead. Um, why do some people like not know, like they don't have the basic literacy and like number, like the recognition patterns? Like, is it due to lack of education or something? Or great question. Uh, I. I Sort of really worried about that a lot. There's no simple. There's no simple answer because education in the United States, you know, is governed through states. It's not governed through uh, through the federal government. We get huge variability in in education, primarily in terms of funding. So some schools get great books, get great teachers, get great materials. Others, they're just lucky to get through the day without getting hurt and and, and having basic plumbing. So part of the problem, I think, wh why those sco scores are so low. For me, I look at it as like one is we don't support education sort of officially, formally, as schools and all, enough. A lot of schools just don't have enough money. The other thing is that as a culture, we don't value sort of facts and science. It's just, you know, you look at the data and you say, the scientists settled this years ago. How come as a culture we didn't agree to it? There's something about American culture which is kind of anti-intellectual. And, you know, it's like, fine, everybody knows about Kobe. Everybody knows, yeah, great basketball player. How come we, how come we all don't know with the same certainty that there's been, you know, that there's a dragon out there? It's, been, it's something about American culture that does not support and not encourage people to take the science seriously. But that's a, that's a great question, and that's one of the key things that has to be uh, answered. So thank you. So let me, let me ask all of you, we live in an amazing state. Education is primarily funded at the, the local level. Where do you think among all 50 states, California would rank in terms of the amount of money it spends on K to 12 education per person? First, second, 10th, just make a guess. What do you think? First, third, eighth. 49, yeah, you're, you're, it's either 48 or 49 now. We rank right down there with a couple of states in the Gulf, the Gulf Coast that I won't mention. Does that make sense for a state like California to spend so little on the education of our kids? 
because if you don't get the, the science and math by the time you are near the end of middle school, you're not going to go into to science. That's very well shown. Right, we have a question down here. I don't know if we let an old guy ask a question. <laughs> you know what I'm going to ask. Uh, very interesting talk. Thank you. Uh, one slight criticism, you kind of stepped over the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is population, as in overpopulation. If you take all those carbon curves and keeling curves mm -hmm. and, and run them up as far as they are, past the, the historical highs, uh, that's the population curve also. Yep. The Pogo cartoon was done in the early 70s for Earth Day, and it was specifically talking about population when we were about 3.5 billion. Today we're at 7.5 billion. So it's hard, to, it's hard to talk about the problem without we are the problem. Right, but, uh, but at the same time, 1978, 1980, there were memos, there were, there were secret reports in the petroleum industry saying the planet is warming. And particularly, let me finish, Partic particularly after the, after the 1980 one, the industry said, we have to sit on this research. If at that point everyone got behind the research and said, whatever the cause is, we have to address this, it would, that would be a different curve than one that said, there is no problem. You don't have to worry about it at all. It'd be, it'd be a steep curve, but... Jerry's saying we're going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius within the next five years. Maybe we'd just be aiming for like 1.3. So that's not to say that's not a problem, but it's also to say that the fact that there was concerted effort to suppress the truth and that the, 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 we developed a culture that was fertile soil for doubt. I mean, look, there are tons of things that are absolutely obvious Almost a quarter of the U.S. population thinks the sun goes around the Earth. That should be embarrassing. Half the population does not believe that we evolved out of anything, and there's no conflict there with religion. That should be an embarrassment, because that's dangerous. The thing I want to stress most, our brains are made to process information, the way that we have succeeded as a species is that we could identify problems and solve them. We could identify dangers and we could address threats. We are a culture that is refusing to address threats as a species that is absolutely self-destructive. And when we talk about this, the future, what is the future of the United States? If we're cranking out a culture where we say, don't worry about threats, we do exactly what we're doing. We're taking a problem that somebody else created, handing it to you people, saying, you didn't create this problem, but you know, you're stuck with it. I mean, that is a terrible thing ethically for one generation to do to the next. So this is not to say, no, the population isn't the same, but the background is also there. But there is good news in population. The global, the global average birth rate now is 2.4. The replacement rate is 2.1 children per woman to have a stable population because the 0.1, the, the, so the, the 2 is to replace the man and the woman, and the 0.1 is because of infant mortality. And it's down from 4 to 2.4 in the last 40 years. And, and it's continuing to go down, and, and even in the, in the less developed world it, where it remains higher, in every country, it's going 
down. So by 2050, it should begin, it will begin to go down. And the reasons are because of the empowerment of women, the education of young girls, moving into cities, if the movement of people away from the countryside into cities is the largest migration in the 200,000 years of human history, and having five or six children if you live in a city isn't an advantage like it is if you live in the country and you need more hands in the field. And, and so th those, are, those are good things that are happening. Should, which, it was too bad it didn't happen sooner, but... Uh, and in, in my experience, one of the most important things that gives me hope is that, you know, as, as I said, I've been teaching for decades. For the at least the last 10, 15 years, the generation of students that I've worked with, issues of climate change, it's a non-issue. It's like, yeah, of course this is the deal. How come nobody else mentioned it? How come people aren't ignoring it? People of your generation and people a few years older are already sold, are already committed on solving the problem. You can do this. You have to sort of push a generation out. They will go out, and you'll be in a position to make the kind of changes that all the students that I work with are already committed to make. So I'm hopeful because I, I see the future in you, and seriously, that's really encouraging. You, you are not saying, well, gee, maybe there aren't dragons out there. You say, no, what do we do about the dragons? And I think, though, then, in terms of what do we do, after you recognize it, being willing to attack it, you have got to have enough scientific literacy and technological literacy to accept, accept some of the solutions that don't seem to be really what, what you would think about the ways to solve this, this problem. We have the science and the technology, but we don't right now. We're not embracing that. Who has the next question? We're going to take this one and then Val. All right, cool. So um, you were talking about like the perception of like free market capitalism being mm -hmm. equal as the money like trickles yep. down. Do you, and like the top percentile like affects the views of others. Right. Do you believe that there is a way to solve climate change without an economic revolution? No. I think that this is going to take boatloads of money. I think that uh, we have a situation now where unfair, unequal distribution of wealth, not just in the United States, but it's worse globally. I think that in we talk about fairness, particularly generational fairness and economic justice, I think that resources have to come from the industrialized West to help the rest of the world. And I think resources have to come from the people who have the most money, who have benefited the most from a skewed system. And however that's, I mean, there are mechanisms that can be in place to do that, but great question because no, it can't be done without a significant change. And look, my feeling is a lot of people at the top got a free ride, they have a great life, they didn't deserve that, but you know, now it's time to pay the bill. And that's just a matter of justice and fairness. And, but part of the, the, the thing is, you have to stop saying, oh, wealth will trickle down. It's, there's not a piece of data that backs that up. It's another part of these things that, yeah, of course, people who are going to fund, you know, who are at the top are going to say that. But this is also one of the things that we talk about knowledge. In addition to knowing about science, 
folk in your generation have to say, well, you know, let's take a look at the data and say, what's been happening in the last 50 years in the economy? Who gets money? How does it happen? When, you know, it, it was pretty good up through 1980. Why was that? Because there were tax policies that pushed the money down. We can do that again, but it does require knowing enough that when someone says, oh, trust us, you say, I don't want trust. I, you know, let's look, at, let's look at the facts. So thank you. So that's a really good thing to point to because that's another piece of the, this is going to cost money. And you just can't say, well, somebody else has to pay. But thank you. They, they should pay their fair share. But don't forget, the, the solution to a lot of these problems it depends on the entrepreneurial spirit. So yeah. you don't want to vilify people just because they've made a lot of money. It, they should pay their fair share. But you kill the entrepreneurism, uh, entrepreneurship, we don't solve anything. We have one back there, and then you're next, pal. So, and one of the things on your slides, you said, talked about illogical thinking. Oh, yes. So how would you constitute illogical thinking in regards to the entire nation, considering that there are other individuals, like, for example, like a Billy who owns, like, a farm, could be, like, dancing on his crops, believing from his perspective, logically, that it's helping growing the plants, for example. If it works, <laughs> no, but like I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> seriously, if he thinks it works, that's okay. The no, no harm, no foul there. Yeah, it's it may be an irrational belief. No, this is a really good question. If it's an irrational belief and it does no harm, makes him happy, makes the plants grow, we don't know that it doesn't. What I'm concerned about, for example, not to bash politics because I, you know, I don't want to sound like I am, but when and this goes both ways, when somebody of party A on day one says, we're going to do this, and it's a wonderful thing. And on day two, when a person from the other party does exactly the same thing, and they say, oh, no, this is a terrible thing, I want to say, you know, you should be embarrassed about this kind of hypocrisy and double standards. So that's the sort of thing. When you, when you listen to, as, as I do, the, the arguments that people make about a variety of things, if they are excluding evidence, if they're giving, give me a quick example. So I flew in yesterday from, uh, you know, from Massachusetts. I pick up my rental car. I'm trying to find out, figure out how the radio works, because I'm looking for good music. I turn it on, and I get an AM talk radio station. And I hear someone say, now he's talking about an article from the Guardian newspaper from 2000. And he's saying, in this story, it said in 2020, it was ironic, you know, it was, oh, climate change, and I'm thinking, I just want music. I've just been working on this thing. I just want, you know, good rock. And it's, there's this article on climate change, and in 2020, all the cities are supposed to be, you know, submerged, and it's supposed to be disaster. And I changed the channel, because I'm looking for music, but I'm thinking, that was just to say, on the basis of one article in a newspaper 20 years ago, that this is the conclusion, and that means there's no such thing as climate change, that is abysmal reasoning. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, not the dancing farmer, which I'm kind of okay with. <laughs> Why not? What do you think about the technology that we have now and how it is influencing the thinking or perhaps lack of thinking on the part of individuals 
I can't tell you how many people I have nearly hit with my car because they are busy looking at their technology. And I'm also thinking of the time spent when they are reading their emails and doing things when they could be observing the world and participating in it. Okay, this is a, this is a two-edged sword. I will freely admit I love technology. I was doing computers and word processing before virtually all of my colleagues. I love the stuff. Now, I don't do it when I drive, but I'm, I'm hooked, and so I really appreciate the value of it. At the same time, setting aside people who, you know, who do almost get hit walking with their phones, um, the thing that concerns me is that one of the reasons that we have so much doubt about so many things is because of the unfiltered and unregulated character of social media. Because, for example, Facebook has decided that if you're a political candidate, you can run an ad that you know is false, and they'll let you run it. Now, Google, Google's not taking political ads. Uh, Twitter's trying to, except for the big exception, Twitter's trying to regulate some, some things. Uh, but one of the reasons that we're in the situation we are is that it is so, technology has made it so much easier to spread falsehoods. Now, it's also made it so much easier to spread knowledge, but we've been hit by a lot of campaigns to, uh, of disinformation. And that's the kind of, the, when I say this is a two-edged sword, on the one hand, I love the stuff and I can see its benefits. On the other hand, there's a danger that we have to recognize. And there is the danger of, of texting while driving and, and you know, always being preoccupied with that. But there's the danger that it makes it easier to manipulate people. And the... Uh, our, you know, our enemies, you know, globally, are really good at this kind of thing. And, and you, you really do have to, you have to take that seriously. There are people who are trying to use a technology we invented and we developed to get us to carve one another up. And that does, you know, that's, that, that's one of the, the drawbacks of technology. You know, when, when you start reading stuff and it starts demonizing people, you can assume that the person who's writing that is not your friend, because demons don't do anybody any good. And I think the other part of it is you can find anything that you're looking for on the internet to substantiate your beliefs, whether they're accurate or not. Doing research on the internet is like mining low-grade ore. There are pockets uh, of, uh, of rich information, but if you don't know where to find those, you can easily be fooled. We've got one over here. And also, and I, I will say to students, where are you doing something? Uh, never Wikipedia in a paper. Now, you can start there, but go to the footnotes, go look for the sources. I mean, if I get something from a student that says Wikipedia, I mean, I, I, mean I, need, I need the sources where this came from because there are better sources and there are work sources. Now, you can find great information. I mean, I believe I can find anything I want on the internet. I can, I'm really good at searching, and I can dig and dig and dig, but I know where you get the data. That's what you need to get adept at. I mean, there are skills at research, because again, this keeps you from being manipulated. It keeps you deceived. This is just, you don't want to give someone an edge to, to con you 
when in order to protect yourself. Uh, yes. I know that there are articles written on how to talk to climate deniers or skeptics, like psychologically, you know, because once they're really uh, insulated in a, in a uh, but I'm like you. I think I have a lot of impatience, and I'm not the I'm not always as nice. Uh, and and it's and I don't know that that's effective. I do like what you said. If you want to amplify it, about there should be a social cost to it because I have a cousin who has had every advantage educationally, and he thinks it's a hoax. I mean, and I uh, told him you're among the people who are anti-vaxxers, you know, flat earthers. <laughs> You deny that 9-11 was, you know, you think oh. it was an inside joke. No, but, but if yes. you, once I marginalized, you know, there was a, an understanding that, as you were saying, you can find all of that. And by the way, if you look up any of those things on the internet, the, it points you to those other things, because it now knows how you think, and it now knows that you will believe. So I don't know if I was going to ask you to sort of amplify how these young people can use both nicer ways that don't insult, but strong ways. I, I went to a march with Greta Thunberg uh, in LA. She, she had this um, youth strike where they walked out of school every Friday for, which may be something people want, I don't know, but for, for a month <laughs> and made a big point right in front of City Hall. Mm -hmm. And her simple truth and honesty is so inspiring. Somebody had said to her, well, you know, even if the US changes, China and India are gonna pollute just as bad. And she said, that's what they say that mm -hmm. the U.S. isn't going to change. I mean, that level of just, so anyway, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, great question. And it, um, all, I, all I can say, look, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I typically get an audience of people like you, you know, and, and my students who are, you know, open-minded, ready to read and ready to think. I fortunately don't have to deal with a lot of, you know, deniers at all. But I can say that when, in a, in, like in a classroom situation, if I come up with something where someone says, well, what about da-da-da-da-da-da? Fortunately, I teach in classrooms that are all wired. So I say, well, okay, let's check that out. So something that I would do the next, next time something like this came up in one of my classes, this is what I'm going to do. In the course of preparing this talk, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the conspiracy stuff about Sandy Hook, which I just, I cannot say enough how despicable it is that someone would say, you know, didn't happen, blah, 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 or wasn't as bad as it was. Um, there is debate about whether or not the, uh, the guy doing the killing used an, you know, a semi-automatic weapon. There are people who say, no, no, he just used handguns. He didn't use a semi-automatic weapon, so there's no reason to regulate those kinds of things. So I said, well, okay, how am I going to find out what the truth is? So I start doing searches on the event on the weapons, and I finally end up with a report from the Connecticut State Police that says, this is what the weapons were. Well, that says, that's the most basic data you can get. I'm thinking, hey, look, if the Connecticut State Police are saying, this is what we confiscated, th and they also said, this is why there's some confusion, and I would, so I would say to some, you know, if we were to do this as a class exercise, I'd say, look, we went through about five levels of searching. We got raw data. That means that whoever is saying it was an art, you know, it, it was just, you know, handguns and it was not a semi-automatic weapon, whatever the deal is, we know what the truth is, that's what we're concerned about. 
Now, I don't know if that would convince someone who's you know, a believer in conspiracy theories, but all you can do is try to get to facts without, without, without personalizing it, without saying, what are you, an idiot? No, you say, okay, let's see what we can find out. In this case, you say, and, and like with all the data, it's like somebody says, oh, it's a hoax. Well, gee, here's the 1978 memo from someone at Exxon. Oh, why would somebody from Exxon be saying the planet's warming unless it were the case? So that's, so that's part of it. You have to come prepared with absolutely as much information as you can get to be prepared for whatever anyone's going to come at you with. I mean, somebody could say, oh, blah, blah, blah. I now say, mobile Exxon, you know, fossil fuel scientists. Man, it's like, okay, what was, why would they be participating in a hoax? You, you, it, the research has shown you have to have, you have your facts. They have to be correct. But the research has shown that if you want to change the opinion of a denier, you don't do it by add, piling on more facts. You do it by creating a story based around the facts that are well known and how that story will affect them and, and their children. We're going to take one more, and then I want to. So let me let me add one other thing, which is which is useful, I think, for you know any 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 student here. So if you're if you've got parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, or just run into you know adults who are giving you a hard time on this, I think you should be shameless in saying, why is it? that you are giving us a world with all of these problems that you knew were there that's gonna, that's gonna make our life harder. Why didn't you care enough to do it different? I mean, use guilt, use shame, <laughs> and then go to facts and this other stuff. But I'd say you should, look, this is a fairness issue. You are not, you are not being treated well. The non-developed nations are not being treated well. We got a great life. They're going to pay the price. I'm if if for some. That's it. Okay. Yeah, my wife tells me that all the time. She's and she's and she's right. Okay, I will shorten them. What do you think is is it about the American ethic that allows anti-intellectualism to flourish? Well, we, we, we say we value education, but I think that, okay, I don't know. Thank you. I don't, I don't know what it is. It, it has puzzled me my entire life why we say, yeah, we value education and we value smart people, but you know, look, if you, if you, know, your, if you know Kobe's stats better than the, than the other stuff, it shows that there's something about American culture that takes that, you know, as more of a value. No, we, we, we're better about sports than we are about the brain. So, short answer. I don't know, but thank you. Uh, we have one right here. Go ahead. I freely yeah. admit ignorance. So you've seen the charts that show the uh, concentration of wealth, probably amongst the top 1% of the people in the uh, country. Yep. These guys uh, can pay for more advertising than any of us can ever read. Yep. And I am a member of the old fart class. My old fart buddies tell me, why should I worry about climate change? I'm going to die within 10 years. I have a question, right? We all do it for self-interest. How many of you young folks are now registered to vote? 
How many hands? Good. Not very damn many. You have to, you have to be 18. So. They're all, they're all young. These are all 15, 16 year olds. Okay. When you get there, your way to correct the problem in our society is to vote. That's right. This is the single most important thing people of your generation can do. You so are in control if you do that. Yeah. And only that. Yeah. If in the 2020 election, which is coming, if you can vote, and there's a candidate who says, oh, this, I love this one, where candidates say, well, I'm not a scientist. How do I know what the answer is? You know, read the damn literature. If you've got someone who's running who says, I'm not a scientist, don't vote for that person. We got that, that final question here, but Ben, I want to thank you because uh, Ben is a, is a teacher for many of the students here. <laughs> and, and, and I think having, having teachers who, who care is, is really important. So Ben, thank you. So you got the last question, no pressure. I know, I'm proud. <laughs> so unless I'm mistaken, as you said, about 20 years ago, the Republican Party switched their views on yeah. climate change. Why do you think it is that, especially in recent days, with an increase in evidence, they haven't switched back and have just stuck to their guns? Uh, okay, so the Republican Party that we have now is not the real Republican. I'm not a Republican, but I, really fo but I follow this really closely. The current Republican Party is not what traditional Republicans would say is the Republican Party. They would say it's a fringe group who have basically taken over the Republican Party and are sworn to just cater to their base, 30, 35% of the population who will believe whatever, you know, the, the, the sort of the party line is. There is, uh, they don't, they're, they're sticking with that because they believe that if they go against, in such to say, oh yeah, there's global warming and global climate change and we have to take action, they're afraid that they will be voted out of office. Because, the way, seriously, the way that the, the logic goes is that in the run-up to the 2020 election, if now, particularly now, they uh, change position, any, any candidate who's up for re-election in 2020 worries about being primaried out in the spring by a more radical candidate and that they worry about then being primaried out, but they then know that if a more radical candidate stands in the general election, they're going to lose because they represent such a small percentage of the population. It's, it's ridiculously short-sighted political strategy and that's why, now you say, well, why would anyone do that? It's crazy if you're really looking for survival over the long term. Uh, there's actually a movement now to sort of other folk who used to be Republicans to rebuild it in a different way, saying, look, we've got to go with facts and truth and all of that. So it's an interesting time because it's a great question, and you've got people saying, this is, why are we doing this? You know, this is not a good, this is not a rational, logical, and they say, well, it's the only way I can keep my seat. And, and all, if you look at the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, all of those that are now under attack. Yeah, they were Republican legislation. That's right. Yes, this is. They were that's all why. put in place yeah. by that 
great presidential, the environmental president, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Oh, you Nixon. never think of that? Yeah, 2003 <laughs> was a shift in strategy. It, like, why do this? All right, we're going to have to bring this to light. I just yeah. want to end with, with, you know, this, the climate change is what's called a wicked problem. A pro wicked problem is a problem that crosses disciplinary boundaries. It involves chemistry, physics, all, all of the sciences, including the social sciences. Wicked problems can never be solved. If they're formulated properly, they can be managed to keep them within bounds and to what the RAND Corporation says, to minimize regret. We have not yet figured out how, how to, to manage, the, uh, to deal with wicked problems because that's not how we were trained. We, were, we either studied philosophy or physics or chemistry and, and none of those alone can do it and it, it has to be done collaboratively and I think you, I want to thank you for a very great talk and a stimulating discussion. And thank you all for coming. We hope you'll be here next time. Thank you very much. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. It was great.